Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, it's a joy to open the Word of God, my favorite part of the service, fellowshiping right now. Not that we don't enjoy singing together and lifting our hearts in worship and fellowshipping in the foyer. These are all great things. But Lord, we want you to speak to us through the Word of God that's eternal and grafted without error, written in a transcendent way, overarching all of time and eternity. The Word of God prevails, and today we want it to prevail in our own hearts. Some of us have heavy hearts. We've heard news recently of just difficult things. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to us, encourage us, bring the oil, the ointment that we need, the balm of Gilead to our soul. Then, Lord, some of us perhaps tugging a little bit at the tether, wanting to go our own way, do our own thing. Lord, bring us back into correct living. Help us today, especially as we consider how to handle disputes in the church Give us a spirit of unity here. Thank you for the sweet grace that I sense as a pastor of this flock. I pray that it would continue. Guard our hearts against selfishness, we pray. And then, Lord, I pray that you would bring to us those that have come to Christ because of the missional heart of our church. Help us to be those who care about the lost and see them discipled here. What a great privilege it is to be called the church of the living God. And so I pray that you would meet with us. We know you're here, but we invite your full attention to our needs. And Lord, I pray that we would give our full attention to the heart of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The question again is about Christians and disputing, called to be saints, remember that, that's really the theme of our series in the book of Corinthians. All of us have a calling to be separated unto God, that's the word or the meaning behind the word saints, we're specially chosen by God for his purpose and plan, so we know that that's the great call of the church, any church who are truly living for the Lord and are believers. The question is, are you contending for the faith or are you just flat out contentious? (laughs) Uh, I don't know if uh, you have ever been a part of a, of a church a business meeting that got what we call out of hand, a little bit contentious. Well, we have no call in the church of God to act in a disorderly way or a contentious way. There's a plan of God by which the church of God problems solve correctly and efficiently. And today we're going to talk about this passage, just the next passage up, and so we're going to look at it. I don't know if ever uh, your business meeting turned into this picture. I hope it hasn't, where the preacher is shouting at somebody, but we're going to look at what happened at the Corinthian church, and Paul instructs them how to have a peaceful, graceful church existence, even in the face of difficulties. None of us are exactly the same. We have different opinions, and yet God wants us to grow together in grace. Just a moment, we'll look at a principle here. But let's take a look at chapter 6 and read a few verses. Let's read the first 11 verses. If you'll follow along right there where you are in your Bible, I will read through verse 11 in mine. 
Chapter 6 and verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against a brother, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know, and this is a phrase that will recur, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world, and if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things then that pertain to this life, the trivial issues of this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. It is so. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? He's asking a lot of questions, isn't he? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, this is utterly a fault. In the Greek, it means it's utterly a failure among you. Because you go to law with one another, why do you rather not take the wrong? Why do ye rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded or cheated? Nay, verse 8, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he begins with a list. This is not exhaustive in terms of the unrighteous. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, that would be homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then I like verse 11, don't you? And such, past tense, were some of you. You know, the church is just a collection of sinners. Such were some of you, but you're washed. We sang about that this morning. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The problem here in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, one of the problems they had, there was a very immature church. Paul had left them now for five years and he was instructing by this epistle correcting some things. The problem was they were taking their dirty laundry and airing it out in front of the world, the court system of the world. And Paul says, that dare, why are you doing that? We'll get into that in just a moment. In fact, we, we, we find that phrase recurring six times in one chapter, chapter 6. Verse 2, don't you know? <laughs> Verse 3, don't you know? Verse 9, know ye not? Verse, I think it's verse 16. What? No, excuse me, verse 15. Know ye not, your bodies are the members. Verse 16, what? Know ye not. Verse 19, what? Know ye not. What does Paul say? Any parent that's here today knows a little bit about this phrase. Are you kidding me, son? (laughs) Don't you? Haven't we ever taught you that? And Paul, like a good instructor, almost with a paternal tone, As a father figure spiritually to the church, he's saying, were you out of class when I taught you that? Six times he says this. It's almost like a a parent. What were you thinking? And Paul, when he gets to this, of course, chapter already started this tone in in chapter 5, when he talked about the one who was living in an immoral fashion with a mother-in-law. Now he gets to this issue of, this uh, idea of 
taking our disputes to the courts around us. And I have found when I was raising young children, especially with the ages between 3 to 18, I use that phrase a lot. What were you thinking, son? Didn't we train you any better? Haven't we told you? In other words, Paul is like a a good parent. He's not only a bit surprised that the lessons he taught were never caught. And training is a life... How many of you know parents? Training is a lifetime deal. They don't get it the first time, do they? Neither did we. Six know-ye-nots are followed by six indisputable statements. And we're just going to look at the first three this morning. They concern the issue of problem-solving in the church. Are we contending or contentious? And you may be thinking, I can check out this sermon because I'm not suing anybody. Nobody's suing me in the church, and, and I don't plan on doing that. And I was thinking about this. Well, should we just do a hot air balloon over this one? But I think God has put it in, in here for our learning and for our for our growth. And so we're going to take this passage and dig some, mine some truths out of it. Amen? I think God has great stuff for us throughout, cover to cover. And here we see him talking about um, the lawyers that were so... It was a litigious society. I was looking, and I found it was just as easy to find jokes about uh, lawyers as it was about preachers. And so I want to share one with you. A man wanted to retain a lawyer. He said, I don't know no, no good thing about lawyers. Well, I am glad there's some good lawyers out there. But a man wanted to retain a good lawyer, so he found a young man, a young lawyer with great, credential, great credentials, decent rates, and asked him, are you an honest lawyer? Well, said the young man, sure I am, and let me tell you something about my honesty. My father lent me $85,000 for my law degree, and I paid back every penny the first case that, was, that I tried. That's impressive. That's a quite, a, quite a big retention fee. What sort of case was it? Well, Dad sued me for the money. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. This passage does not teach that all lawyers are crooks. And uh, it does not teach that Christians should never go to law for some issues, especially when, as it regards uh, those who come against us to uh, defraud us in terms of the world around us, right? And I'm thankful that even the writer of this book, Paul the Apostle, had his own lawsuit. Remember that? In Caesarea, what did he say? When he was tried by uh, a tribunal of, of Jews who were very anxious to see him dead, he said what? As a Roman citizen, he said, I appeal to Caesar. And he had that right as a Roman citizen to take his case from where there was a surrounding wolves who wanted him dead, at least to a place where the jury was more impartial in Rome, the imperial courts. And so he said, I appeal. So there are cases, and I'm thankful for organizations like the CLA, the NCLL, uh, Christian Alliance, and so forth, that defend the cause that we have as a church in the, in the secular community and stand up for our rights and help adjudicate in cases where we need. I praise God for honest lawyers. We need them. But the, the real purpose, the driving force here is we are not as believers to take our disputes 
to the world. The slide behind me tells us why. It tarnishes the testimony of the church. It's a shame, uh, it's said there in verses 5 and 6, it's a shame to do that. I speak to your shame. Isn't there anybody wise among you? The answer is there should be in the church. Not one that is able to judge between his brethren. And so it is, we see that there are really three issues when the church begins to air its dirty laundry in front of the world. One, the grace of God, it, 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 it says, well, the grace of God must be insufficient to solve the problems. They're just like we are. And we are told in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that it is a sufficient book to handle all areas of what? Life and godliness. And so we must be careful about uh, taking our, our, our fences between believers to the world's courts. By the way, it's really un- important to understand that when the church uh, puts a tribunal together, when the church brings the elders together and forms what we sometimes call a, as a discipline committee, the point isn't punitive strictly, is it? Where we say, all right, our, 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 it's eye for eye, and we get two feuding brothers in Christ together, and it's uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what did he take, what did he do, and it's justice, pure justice. That is never the point of the criminal justice system within the church, right? It is always about reconciliation. It is restorative and not punitive. Although there are consequences that should be meted out appropriately for sinful behaviors, the goal of the church is always to reconcile. And that's why we mentioned last week, it starts with a gentle whisper privately, one-on-one within the context of the church. The offenses come, they always will, we're sinners. And then it escalates to a faithful elder or a pastor or friend meeting with accountability with the erring one who still is pulling against the tide of righteousness and the collective wisdom of his friends within the church. Come back to God. No, I will not. And final analysis there, he's called upon, and they did this with the fellow there in chapter 5. They excommunicated him from the church because he was living like an unbeliever. We know that process, but the idea throughout every step of the process is to bring that one back into fellowship. It's not just raw justice. And uh, we, we're, we're more than just uh, the criminal justice system for believers. You know, if it's just pure justice, if you've done the crime, you've got to do the time, right? Whether, whether, it's, whether, it's, punit- excuse me, whether it's monetary or if there's been an offense or a misdemeanor or a felony, or in the world's eyes, it's about, okay, so you don't have the money, <clears throat> you did that particular crime, so you either pay it back and spend some time in jail. If the crime is bad enough, you're going to spend X amount of years in jail, right? And so that's really the government's place not to bear the sword in vain. We do not build churches. Have you noticed that the architect at Bible Baptist Church didn't have a little place at the back of the campus for the jail. (laughs) That surprises some of you. We call that the school. No, I'm kidding. Um, But there there isn't. Now, I found out as I did some research for this message that uh, 
there was a place behind the high priest's house, Caiaphas' house, where they, there was a dungeon. In fact, Jesus spent time there. But in our dispensation, age of grace, church, we're not called upon to actually incarcerate our members. Aren't you? That's good, good to hear, right? But we are to settle our disputes in a way that's biblical. And so we see that listed for us. And, and it's wonderful to know that God has given us a plan for that. We are to police our own people. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 12 reminds us of that. What have I to do, Paul speaking, to judge those that are without? What is he speaking about there? Those that are outside the church, unbelievers, <clears throat> the heathen around us. But we are to judge them that are within. Those are those that have come to know Christ and are worshiping with us part of the body of Christ. Those that are without, God will judge. Then he goes on to say, in regards to the case spoken of last time we met, the one who was in in blatant immorality and unrepentant of it, cast that one out of your membership. Well, there are three things I think that happens when we take what we cannot figure out inside the church and export it to the world. It tells them they can't figure it out. Maybe God's, God's word and God himself, his grace, is not enough to figure this, untangle these two fighting brethren from so-and-so Baptist church up the road. So let's send it to the experts, right? Secondly, it says to the world, we want uh, the unsaved courts to have greater authority over our people than our own pastors and leaders. Essentially, we surrender God's design system of arbitration to the world. We know that from Hebrews 13, 17, we are to trust those that have the rule over us. One of the words for pastor is a ruler, not in the sense of an iron-fisted, hard-hearted type of rulership, but one who can discern and between those who are at odds with one another. Thirdly, it exposes our vileness, our ugliness and sinfulness before those who are, listen carefully, most likely to rejoice and scandalize our own weaknesses. Our members are selfish, it sends a message to the world, the church they're just as bad as we are, if not worse. They can't figure it out. They have to come to us for help. Now, are we sinners? Yes. But there's a plan by which God has designed that the church members who are mature and seasoned ought to be able to help those who are struggling. Ye who are spiritual are to help those that are struggling. So the church's adjudication is restorative. It is about surrounding uh, those who are disputing brethren with a community of caring believers whose goal it is to reconcile them and bring them back to a place of full effectiveness and health within the body of Christ to restore the fellowship. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 it is uh, of this 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, we think it's about this same guy that was excommunicated in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says to them, Bring him back. He was punished, but he's repented and he, is for, and he is forgiven now and should be comforted so that he is not, and the word there in the King James is swallowed up 
with much sorrow. Don't leave him in jail, so to speak. Don't leave him outside of the church. Once he's repented, bring him back into full fellowship. Amen. In chapter 2, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians, bring him back into fellowship and full usefulness. Confirm him. Love, confirm your love toward him. Now then, back to our text here. We've read a few verses. Remember, the Corinthians have been conditioned to think like the world. Paul, chapter 5, called them, chapters 4 and 5, called them at least four times. He's called them puffed up. They're mesmerized with the world's way of thinking and the world's way of handling problems. And so he starts chapter 6 off with some strong language. Like my coach I mentioned last time, dare any of you. Of course, he's writing this from Ephesus, but he is incensed. And by the way, this isn't just Paul blowing up. This is the Holy Spirit. Remember that writing. Dare any of you. Having a matter against another to go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Strong. How, dare, how can it be? That you go to the common courts in Corinth and not the church. Let me just give you a little history to why that might have happened there even more than it happens here. In those cities, in those days, litigation was inscribed into the social fabric of people. In fact, it seemed like everyone, in fact, there was a saying in Athens just up the road, that every Athenian is more or less a lawyer. It was a great entertainment and inscribed in the culture of uh, that day to bring cases to the public forum. Corinth was no different. So if you had a, a dispute, historians would tell us, here's how you would handle it. If you lived during those days, there was a process. The first step was private arbitration. Each party in the disagreement would be assigned a private citizen as an arbitrator, and a third would be assigned as a neutral party, kind of to break the vote or break the tie if there was a, a tie. And if no resolution could be established in private arbitration, the case would go to public arbitration before a court of 40 people. Public arbitrators were qualified simply as any Roman citizen aged 60, the perfect age to judge people. That's my age, 60. If you're 60 years old, you're a perfect age to judge people. No, I, I didn't give you permission there. Just wanted, That's how they did it. And so, if that process failed with 40 jurors, then your case went to jury trial where hundreds or up to thousands could sit as jurors to hear your case. So, you have to understand that either as a litigant, lawyer, juror, or witness, the streets, or especially the center, uh, the center court of, uh, of Corinth was daily filled with what we call the circus courts. <laughs> I call it that, where they were always trying cases all over the place. And if you were a citizen of Corinth, you were involved in the process. How many have ever been called for jury duty? Raise your hand. Right. I think Dan just told me last week he was called. Uh, the process there was very onerous and very comprehensive, and everybody was more or less a lawyer. And so that culture of litigation was written into their DNA. 
No wonder then that when this young baby church had problems between each other, it was so easy to just bring in the public forum, the public process known in government and just export their problems to these who are outside the church. So we've seen, first of all, it tarnishes the testimony of the church. What's the next problem? It fails to appreciate the true position of the believer. Let's back up to verse 2. I think Paul sets the record straight. In fact, he makes us think about something many of us don't think about a lot. He says, do you understand something? You who love litigation, you who love to, to just take your baggage and bring it before the world's courts, he says, understand something. Don't you know that saints shall judge the world When does that happen? At the end of the millennium, you're going to sit on God's jury. And you will judge. There will be at least four judgments. Judgment of of the unsaved, judgment of the saved, judgment of the nations, judgment of the angels. And to some degree, we can't be very dogmatic about how this works, but to some degree, all of us who are part of the bride of Christ will sit in the jury on one of those trials. I don't know, maybe all of them. And you will play a part in the convictional process. Of course, the judge of all the earth will do right. Amen? We just have to echo his judgment. Raise our hand and say, guilty as you charge them, sir. But it's going to be a turning of the tables. And it's kind of exciting. Paul brings this up. Not only are you going to judge the unsaved, but you will be a part of the judgment process of the angels. Consider that, the fallen angels. So somewhere along the line, God will turn the table on the Mussolinis and the Hitlers and all these who have tortured the Husseins and all these who have tortured Christians throughout the ages and all those who don't claim the name of Christ. And we sit there as in judgment, of course, with our glorified perspective, and those who have heard us and lived for our torture and lived for our destruction and lived for our pain will then be before us. And Paul reminds them, understand something. You ought to be able to handle the stolen, you know, casserole dish in your church that ended up at Goodwill and you found it. I'm just saying. You ought to be able to handle that because one day you will stand with Christ in judgment of the unbelievers and of the angels who have fallen. So act according to your station and identity. Isn't that wonderful thought? It fails when we take our stuff and our arguments and art before the world, we forget, he says, that you're a judge, that one day you will stand before those who are guilty because of hardened unbelief, and you will, you will cast your judgment on not only Nero and Hitler and Mussolini and Hussein and all those who are involved. Can you think of history? All those who have all come against the church. You will stand there, but you also stand in judgment of fallen angels. So take to heart your station, your identity, and understand you can handle the difficulties that come 
between brothers in Christ. I got a call one time when I was pastoring my first church and uh, voice, I didn't know who it was. He didn't, I, I said, who is this? I'm not going to tell you. He said right off the bat, I'm not going to tell you. But pastor, I found something when I was mushroom hunting on your property way back in the woods. Wasn't here, church in Indiana. I said, well, what did you find? He said, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you. I said, uh, was it valuable? He says, yeah, pretty valuable. But he said to me, Pastor, if you can't tell me what you lost in the woods and who lost it, I'm keeping it. I had to think. I, I, never, I never studied that in seminary. What do you do with that? I got indignant. Well, I said, sir, that's ours, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's ours. Bring it back, please. He said, I'm not going to do it. I said, sir, since I don't know your name, I guess I can't take you to court. And I don't even know if you're a believer. <laughs> and some things just, you know, you rank, what should we do with that one? But when it comes to clear cases between believers, we ought to, in a spirit of grace, come before those, especially when we can't work it out. Come before those who are trusted and mature in the church and work our way through it, right? We should. And, and here he's saying, take, take your case. Now, Verse 4 can be hard to understand a little bit, um, especially in our kind of our old King James language. If you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge where the least esteemed in the church. Now, the, the point of this, and I, there's, it's, it's really kind of, in, it's kind of difficult to understand in the Greek. It's not that, okay, so you have matters... Uh, that you're struggling with, so find the least capable person. That's what it seems to read like. Okay, so you have issues, find the least capable person in the church and put him in charge of that case. No, it's not saying that. He says when you have matters, it's important to understand that God uh, has endowed you, even the least of you, with his spirit. If you're a believer, you have a different judgment because the spirit of God is within you. And an understanding, again, of that principle that that the church um, arbitration system is about restoring the one who is erring. So even though the least of you may not have great wisdom, he is endowed with the Spirit of God. I speak to your shame. The the verse really saying that the least of us who is a believer has more standing and wisdom and is more equipped to handle the issues of life better than the the lawyer down in the center court in Corinth, the unbelieving judge who has no basis of eternal truth and no spirit of God to guide him. Is there not, verse 5, anyone among you who could able to provide wise counsel to handle this problem? The answer should be yes, there is. Number three, I think when we take our disputes before the world, it stops short of using the best tool there is in problem solving. You pick it up in verse 7 and 8. What's the best tool? Now, therefore, uh, there is utterly a fault among you. You're, you're, a, you're doomed from the get-go if all you can think about is running your case to law. You go to law with one another. Why do ye not rather what? That's hard to say. Why don't you just take it on the chin? Why don't you rather just 
absorb the fault of someone else. Getting quiet. Why don't you, like Christ on the cross, say, there's your sin, I'll die for it. I'll take it. Imputation. God's, our sin given to Him, His grace imparted to, imputed to us, not imparted, imputed to us. We stand in the mercy of God. We are what we are because of the grace of God. And yet as sinners, sometimes we get so incensed because somebody did something in church that, and they took my pew. That was mine. This is no kidding. And Paul's just saying, A, get over it. B, take it. Take it like Christ did. First church, I, I, and you know, I'm a little bit OCD about how the church looks. And I, I should be OCD about other things, but I, I like a clean-looking church. And I came to the, the, first, this is my, the first church, and there was a big green frog that some lady had donated that sat right by the entrance. Now, I know some of you are really frog lovers, but there it sat, and it, it bothered me. It didn't seem very spiritual to have Kermit. And every time I walked to church, I just, that bothered me. The frog bothered me. So one day, quietly, I said to my wife, I'm going to kill the frog. And yes, that became a, an offense. Somebody donated the frog. And to them, it was a great spiritual sacrifice, and it looked good to them. You know, there can be a thousand things that get, in, get in our, under our saddle and cause us to just hate one another. The frog. Can you imagine getting to heaven, holding a green frog? Say, Lord, I won that one. Say, I killed the frog. How silly. And Paul is saying this to us. In the light of what Christ has done. Why don't you just take it? Christian litigants, Christian lawyers everywhere, why not let it go? My mind right now is full of the offenses, the improprieties of 30 years. And thankfully, I have a short memory and it's getting shorter all the time. From fiscal scandals to pregnancies out of wedlock to broken rules at school, broken hearts from addictions, pettiness over someone who sat in a pew, appointments that were forgotten, advancements that were passed over, unfair practices, boyfriends that were stolen, marriage squabbles, and I already mentioned the casserole dish. What do we do? Do we just sweep it all under the rug? Is that what you're asking us to do, preacher? Just forget about it all? No, not under the rug, but under the blood. You can't take it with you, this stuff that is so important to you. There is utterly a fault. There's something wrong, Paul is saying, with the way you think. In fact, if you go to to law with your brother, you've lost the case already. 
There's no winner. Oh, yeah, I, I taught him a lesson. No, there's no winners. There's a spiritual battle in which there are no winners. You've already started that battle. The Lord tells us in Matthew 5 and verse 40, If any man sue thee at law, take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. The Lord always takes it that one step further. Yeah, so, so if somebody sues you, go ahead and give them what they want and then give them a present as they leave the courtroom. Ouch. We can't win in a case against our brother. In a marriage as well, Christian marriages, fighting does not solve the issue. A spirit, you know what solves the issue? It's not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of a reconciling, restorative spirit. I love the a story that's told of a, of a man by Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside reminds us of a, something that happened in his life as a young man. Harry Ironside was a Canadian-born preacher who pastored at Moody Church from 1929 to 48. And he recalls a business meeting in his youth where a man stood up red-faced and said, I will not put up with this. He says, I will put up with a good deal But there's one thing I will not stand. It's someone who's trying to pull a fast one on us. I have my rights, you know. A Scotchman heard heard him and he was a bit hard of hearing. So he leaned over and said, what was that, brother? I didn't hear that. The man looking back at the Scotchman said, I said I will have my rights. Oh, came the man. But you do not really mean that, do you, brother? Surely, for if you got what you deserved, you would be in hell this very moment, wouldn't you? And so would I. Don't forget, the God who owned it all laid it all aside to come and take our wrongs, yours and mine. Well, the man was silent and then he broke into tears and he said, Brethren, I have been all wrong. Please settle this as you think best. He sat down weeping, and in three minutes, this, this huge church dispute was settled by simply this understanding of the right attitude. We often clutch so tightly to what doesn't matter at all. Last point this morning is this. It minimizes the miracle of transforming grace. It minimizes the miracle of transforming grace. The reason I believe that the Spirit of God included this list of the unclean, the perverse, the ugly, is because it's a mirror that he holds up to this church that are clutching their personal rights. And and he says, remember that? And he holds up verse 9, I believe it is, right? The deceived, fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, the abusers, the homosexual, transvestites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, those who really criticize, extortioners, the cheats, that's what that is. You've cheated your boss, you've cheated others, perhaps even in the church. None of these really inherit without a life-transforming 
miracle. None of these will inherit. If you are consistently doing these things and there's not the voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, you're wrong, and if you're sold to your sin, you will not, you will not inherit heaven, period. And then he turns the tables to them and said, such were some of you. Aren't you glad for the next few, verse, or next few words, but you're washed. You're washed. You are washed in the life-giving blood of the Lamb. There, there is nothing. Remember, Corinthians, it's only been five years, but as you came in for church membership and you told us about your past, we all kind of raised our, you were sold to the sex, the sex trade there in Corinth, and some of you were prostitutes, some of you were homosexuals in the religious system, and some of you were cheats and embezzlers and extortioners and drunkards, and you came to church and God saved you. Because no other philosophy, no other idea, no other notion could do so. The blood of Jesus Christ washed you. And in a moment, all that filth in your life was washed, justified. As Brother Starr told us, you in the eyes of God were as clean as the wind-driven snow because he saw you through the sacrifice and the mercy of the cross. And so what are you holding on to so tightly? Why do you want to drag it before the public court? What is so important to you? It cannot be buried in the miracle of God's mercy to you. I encourage you not to die holding on to a bitterness with another saint. Don't take that to the grave in the light of what God has done for you. I don't know any of your hearts, but what a list this is and what a transformation this is. We heard a testimony online from a gal in Whitney's church just before they got baptized. They were sharing their testimonies and she was one in the sex trade and she had, by the witness of a friend, come to know Christ. And she was sharing her testimony in front of the church. She says, I, huh. she said, I have no right to be here. My life was vile, unacceptable, immoral for a long time. But somebody came by and and shared with me that there was a God in heaven that loved me enough to die on a cross, not for any sins that he's committed, but for all of my sins. And after doing that, he offered me his righteousness. And I'd never heard anything like that. I'd tried different things to change my lifestyle. But she said, I received the free gift of eternal life. And oh, what a change when he moved in. What a wonderful change in my life was wrought when Jesus came in, tears flowing down her cheeks. She told of her new life in Christ. Sometimes we put ourselves outside of this list. Oh, I was a good church Sunday school boy. God was lucky to have me. Oh, no. 
We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And so let's live not a stingy, litigious, carping, bitter life. Let's live a thank you life. I encourage you to do that. Let's bow together, shall we, as we pray. <clears throat> what a blessing it is, Lord, to know that you loved us like no other. There was no other compelling reason to come from heaven out of obedience to your Father except that God so loved the, sinner, the sinning world, and yet you did. And in that, you teach us how to handle our disputes. We're to have the same mind of Christ, the lowly, humble, gracious mind of Christ that receives the wrong. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.